things us, all things us, unapologetic and unafraid to tackle the issues and more that matter to the melanated, to empower, entertain, and liberate. Tonight's special guest is counselor and social worker Nicole Armstead-Williams. We will discuss some of the issues of mental health in our community. Good evening. All right, so thank you for being with us this evening, Miss Nicole Armstead-Williams. How are you? Thanks. I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Well, I appreciate it. And so, you know, when we talked um, a couple months ago, um, I was just really fascinated about the work you were doing. And so for our um, All Things Us podcast, just thought it'd be really interesting to to have you on and, and get some insights. Um, and as you know, a few years ago, with the challenges of co-parenting and stuff, I started uh, spent about eight months looking for therapists with my for my um, daughter here in Atlanta, and and as well as myself, and you know reached out to some colleagues, um, some former school counselor for referrals, and just had a really challenging time trying to find the right therapist. If there's such a thing, you know, somebody that she felt really comfortable with, who looked like her, and who as she said at 15 at the time, who was at least halfway interested in me as opposed mm. to whatever they wanted to tell me. And so mm. in these conversations, conversations with my um, my brothers, my black male friends and, you know, the dynamics of our families and life pressures and all that, I just started really looking into counseling. And, and, and as we would talk, Man, I ain't going to no therapist. I am not doing that. Um, Pray about it. Toughen right. it up. Talk about it. Yep. <laughs> right. yep. And so those conversations, I'm like, dude, like you can't find any. That's everybody's excuse. I can't find the right person. Um, so I started on this journey to to be a part of the solution, which is how I led to, to interviewing you for a class back this spring. Um, and again, was really fascinated by some of the stuff you said. So I just I just love to have a conversation about your work, your journey, how you got here. And, you know, we'll end with some tips and advice and all that great stuff if you're willing to do that. Sure, sure. Let's let's do all it. Right. Let's, let's do, do it. it. Let's do it. Okay. <laughs> all right. So um, just tell us, give us a little bit of your background and, and where you are and what you do and how you got there and all that. And we'll just go from there. Oh, gosh. Um, so background, um, let's see. Let's see, background, professionally, um, my background, I think like my foundation was um, serving as an educator. Um, my undergraduate degree was in secondary English education where I had the pleasure of teaching at George Washington Carver School of Health Sciences and Research um, for three years um, as an English teacher. Um, in hindsight, um, I feel that um, serving as a teacher, um, I mean, I feel like my bias is that if you can be a teacher, you can, you can literally be anything. It is like, it is like the foundation of, of so many other aspects of work and service and connection and relationships and showing up. Mm -hmm. um, and I then... Uh, moved to Washington, D.C., um, where originally I thought I was going to continue my degree in English, focusing on 
African-American literature, um, getting my master's at Howard University. Um, but, you know, it's, it's wild the way that, like, the universe has, you know, different, um, different pathways in store. And mm -hmm. so um, about a year and a half into the program, um, I began to... I began to experience for myself like um, increased anxiety, panic attacks, like the pressure of black excellence, right? Like the pressure of not wanting to disappoint my family or um, myself or people that were rooting for me. <clears throat> and so to make somewhat of a long story short, um, I really buckled under the anxiety um, and um, um, and found myself just kind of taking a year off, um, still being supported by um, uh, the, the English department chair at the time, um, and talked to me about like other opportunities that might be available, especially based on a lot of the essays that I wrote and the stories that I would read with mostly regarding um, narratives of trauma, um, particularly for like black women characters in some of the stories that I read. Um, and so the, the professor was like, you know, this is, you know, this is African-American literature, but you have like this, like this gravitation towards like trauma-based narratives. Um, maybe you should explore something like social work. Mm -hmm. um, and at the time I, I did not know anything about social work other than, um, if I have to be fully honest, like other than the assumption of um, child and family services case manager type of social work. Um, but in speaking with the department, like something felt really aligned. Um, I was supported with letters of recommendation um, from the English department to the School of Social Work. Um, and it, um, like it completely changed like the trajectory of, of like my personal life, my professional life. Um, it made sense. Um, it was, it was like, it was like a world where I could just show up um, in such an authentic way. Um, it was kind of like, this is my language, like this is my language. And so, um, I completed that two-year program, um, graduated, um, and completed all of my clinical hours, um, and serve as a therapist today. So that's that's kind of me professionally. But I think outside of that, um, I'm Southern. I I love animals. Mm -hmm. I love sweet potatoes. Um, you know, I love my family. Um, and a good road trip. Mm -hmm. That's important mm -hmm. to know. <laughs> okay, okay. Um, there, there was a lot in there, and and because I know, but our audience doesn't know. Can you give a a shout out to that particular university that you mentioned? And we we might save that whole discussion for the the um for the love of children podcast. But you know, I have a daughter that's entering her senior year, and so we've been having those conversations around colleges, and and I've been pushing. Mm -hmm. HBCU. So if you, you want to give that um, shout out to that university, by all means, feel free to. 
Absolutely. I mean, I think, um, you know, what I will say is that I, I know that with, with any academic institution, everyone's experience is going to be uniquely their own. Um, but I think my experience at Howard University is one of, of feeling very held. Um, I, felt, I felt held. Um, I felt cared for. Um, I felt believed in. Mm-hmm. Um, and even when my, when my journey kind of moved out of one department, um, it was this conversation about like your, your relationship with mental health and anxiety has absolutely nothing to do with your intelligence. Like it has nothing to do with who I was as, as a student and a scholar and um, someone who loved learning. And I appreciated that professors supported me to see that because at the time I didn't. Um, yeah, and so I, I, think, I think my experience at, at Howard um, was one that reminded me that it is okay if your journey changes, it's okay if your narrative changes, how do you still honor it? Um, and how do you still allow your village, so to speak, to show up for you um, and, not, and not to let like my story be one of quote unquote failure. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I feel like if, if it wasn't for my experience at Howard University, um, I'm sure I would be somewhere, but I don't know. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm just, I'm really grateful and fortunate um, that, I, that I had people believe in me um, even through my hardships um, and, and root for me from, from start to, to completion. Mm-hmm. And, and really it was a part of, you know, knowing you prior and, and in your experience at Howard um, that was really important to me as I was looking at schools to, to start my own clinical counseling journey. And it was really important to me having, you know, attended what, one, two, three, four, maybe five, four historically <laughs> white colleges and universities, you know, yeah. um, and I make the distinction with that because, you know, again, you, you mentioned narratives, right? Um, and we talk about, you know, narratives versus data or whatever, but we call them uh, PWIs mm-hmm. for predominantly white institutions, which is kind of a misnomer because it gives the the idea that that's so, that that we could always go as people of color, right? And and that's not true. So if we're going to have a an HBCU, right, we we need to name the invisible of the HWCU. And so having having done that for um, three or four of my degrees, it was just really important that I go back and just. You know, my mom was a graduate of North Carolina Central, um, and so I absolutely love it. And I think with the things that we're studying, the focus and work I want to have in this latter part of my career um, is the perfect place for me. So hope it hope it turns out as I'm just starting, um, like 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 Absolutely. it's going for you. So, Absolutely. Right. I mean, yeah, I'll just say like it 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 is what it is what you create it to be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about what you are what you currently do. Um, so I currently serve as a psychotherapist. So I'm um, uh, a licensed independent clinical social worker. Um, I know that there are licensed professional counselors, psychologists, psychiatrists, MDs. Um, but I take a lot of a lot of pride in 
naming that I am a clinical social worker. Mm-hmm. Um, so I serve as a therapist, um, um, partially in um, a federally qualified health center here in DC, um, but also in private practice as well. Um, and under kind of that umbrella, um, a lot of the focus that I um, that I hold space for um, are working with adult survivors of trauma, um, loss, grief, hardship, um, individuals navigating depression, loneliness, anxiety, um, and um, just overall kind of sense of, of, of burnout. Um, mostly populations um, would be like black people, um, black women, um, people of color, um, and, and, and oftentimes people who are, I think similar to what you mentioned earlier, like really looking for uh, a therapist who kind of mirrors them and has some cultural overlap um, and an understanding of like some of the unique like mental health experience or just life experiences that black people have without having to, to do the extra work of explaining that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and can tell us a little about what you do with the each of two, your own and the federally funded program. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the, um, at the FQHC, um, I still serve as a therapist there. Um, mostly focusing on um, working with like long-term survivors of HIV, mm-hmm. um, um, wow. adults and youth, um, LGBTQ youth, trans and non-binary individuals. Um, again, issues that uniquely impact um, Black people and people of color. Um, there's also um, here in DC um, quite um, quite a significant population of people seeking asylum. So sometimes holding some space um, for individuals who um, are seeking asylum from their country of origin based upon, um, let's say, gender identity or um, You froze on me. I hope I didn't lose you. This um, again, I I work mostly with um, adult. I lost um, you for about a second. Oh, about oh. probably thirty seconds. So gotcha. you froze on me. So, <laughs> um, so in. In private practice, um, I work um, with adult women, um, Black women and women of color, um, working professionals um, who are navigating um, aspects of unresolved trauma, um, anxiety, um, perfectionism, um, and being enough um, in this in this world. So. Um, I, you know, while the spaces are, are uniquely different, the overlap is that like, I can genuinely wake up and say, 
I absolutely love what I get to do and who I get to work and collaborate with um, because it's a partnership. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a collaboration. Um, this is relational work. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I like, it just, yeah, it, um, I guess the only way I can describe it is it makes my heart smile. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and those are both um, extreme. I mean, we could do shows for days on both um, and, and don't want to lose that. But how do, uh, in your private practice, how do, how do the, the women or your clients come to you? Mm-hmm. Um, so mostly just through referrals, um, sometimes just, um, just a general um, search of um, sometimes they will like search different um, uh, uh, like therapy search engines and maybe they're focusing on like black therapists or, um, you know, trauma-informed therapists. Um, and, and I, I um, am enlisted kind of in that directory. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, when that happens, you know, I, I explained to them, you know, just kind of how I show up clinically and, and wanting to be able to offer um, like just like a free kind of like consultation just to um, welcome them into the space, um, learn about them, learn, learn what their hopes are for therapy um, and to um, support them, um, I think, to find a match that feels aligned with them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I try to, from the beginning, um, invite like conversations about how they want to see their own narrative develop in this work. Um, so yeah. are, are these, and so these are people mostly who are women, mostly who self-select or self-identify yes. that, that they need support. Okay. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and would you think that what would you what advice would you give to those people that are struggling and, and may not realize that they need support or support may be helpful to them? I think the first thing that really just kind of comes up for me is a person. I think a person has to reach a point where they're able to give themselves permission to, to be supported mm-hmm. um, in, in a very specific way um, because therapy is, is a very specific type, type of support. You know, it's different from trying to talk it out with friends and peers or going to church community or other creative ways that people try to navigate presenting concerns. So I think that it's it's so much of it is is reaching a place where a person can say, I I am deserving of ease. I am deserving of um, joy. Um, this dominant narrative does not have to be about suffering. And I think that particularly for for Black people, um, there is this dominant narrative of like the struggle is real. Everything's got to be a fight, right? Um, and um, and so I think like my guidance is like, it's, it's okay to disrupt that narrative. It's okay to be curious about um, 
a a life that does not involve um, such consistent fight. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's about readiness um, because if if you're not if you're not ready, um, then it's not it's not going to be of service. Mm-hmm. Um, therapy requires vulnerability. It asks and invites vulnerability. Um, but not at the expense of creating harm. Um, and I would also say like, name what you need, like mm-hmm. name, name, name what it is that you need, because it is the therapist's ethical responsibility to hear that um, and to either be in agreement and in collaboration with that, or to to refer and say, I might not be the most aligned, but let me provide you with a referral that can support you with where it is that you want to go. Um, and I'm sure that I could, I'm sure that there's other things that I can think about, but I think at the at the end of the day, it's it's really about knowing, again, just knowing that you are deserving of the narrative that you choose to write, um, that support is there, um, and that it's, it's, it is a collaborative journey. And it's, it's hard sometimes, but it's not hard all the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good stuff. And so you, you mentioned that, um, and we, we talked briefly that, you know, there just aren't enough um, therapists of color out there. And, and that's a refrain that I found myself as well as I hear from so many people. Um, and I was doing some research and it said one of the other barriers is, um, I think it was insurance or payment, you know, or, or fee, you know. Um, and, there, and there was another one that, that came to mind just about how people access therapy, right? Um, mm-hmm. Talk to us a little bit about that. Are there some options out there for people who may not have like the best of insurance? There, there are options, um, but I think it depends on where the person is regionally. Mm-hmm. Because the thing about the thing about therapy. So, for example, I'm I'm located here in Washington D.C. and I'm licensed in the District of Columbia in Maryland, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but if somebody, let's say in Atlanta is reaching out to me, I am not licensed in the state of Georgia. So I can't, I can't provide care to someone who is not under the jurisdiction with which I am licensed. So I think that particularly for social workers is, um, is in and of itself a barrier because say, for example, with licensed professional counselors, I believe there's a certification program that will allow counselors to be like nationally certified and credentialed. Um, Social work does not have that. So I think just um, the licensing limitations um, in and of itself creates a barrier. Um, And depending on where you are, an urban setting, a rural setting, um, especially with the pandemic, um, a big challenge for a lot of the communities that I served at the health center was that not everybody had a smartphone. 
-hmm. Not everybody had an in internet connection. Not everybody had access to virtual care. Um, sometimes people did not have um, a working phone. Um, so sometimes um, just, you know, kind of what you're saying, like these financial barriers um, can also very much limit care. Um, from a private practice perspective, um, it ranges. You know, there are absolutely some private practice therapists who are paneled with insurance companies, um, and there are a lot of therapists who are out of network um, and have their own investment rate and sliding scale as, as needed. Mm -hmm. um, more and more, I am seeing, um, uh, uh, like, uh, private practice therapy groups that have a sliding scale um, based upon like what you can pay. Um, there are, you know, there are, um, I'm trying to think, oh, the name escapes me. Um, oh, the name escapes me, That's but okay. there, there, there is a foundation that, um, that receives donations and funds specifically to support um, free mental health services for um, young black women and girls. Mm -hmm. um, oh, the name of the foundation escapes me. I'll, I'll find it. If, it um, if it comes back to you, just shoot it to me and I'll put it in the um, copy um, for the podcast. So, yeah, okay. no so I want to ask you this. I'm going I'm to set this up from the perspective of misdiagnosis, right? Um, as an as a career principal educator, um, particularly an African American male, one of my greatest frustrations in being a high school leader was that I would get so many, particularly boys as well as as, as our African American females, who I honestly believe would show up in ninth grade entirely misdiagnosed, you know, um, labeled um, just just all the labels that they came with by the time they got to ninth grade when, you know, I would always say that while there are a whole lot of our kids that are learning delayed, that's not learning disabled. Correct. And 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 we 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 diagnose kids as learning disabled and treat them accordingly versus recognizing that sometimes if mom or dad didn't have the means or the time to do your colors and your numbers before you walked into that pre-K or kindergarten teacher who now made you a red bird or bluebird and you learned bluebird behaviors and were treated mm -hmm. like a bluebird for the next two or three mm -hmm. years, um, mm -hmm. that, that wasn't the same. And so I wanna, wanna kind of draw a line to that from the clinician's perspective and the challenges that I hear from so many of my friends, male and female, when we have these conversations and, and basically what my daughter said was that, you know, I can't find anybody who's legitimately interested in me versus the what the pattern that they want to put on me and tell me, you know, how I should be. And so long way around asking you what what advice because you talked about how you show up, you know. So first question is how you how do you show up as a mm -hmm. as a clinician? And then what advice would you give um, to other clinicians who may not show up as flexible 
um, or differentiated for the person who's sitting before them. And they just have a template of therapy. You know, I'm reminded of an undergrad when I took first psychology course and, you know, almost every class when the professor would throw out this theory, 20 people would jump up. Oh, that's my guy. You know, that's my girl. That's that's what I'm going to do. You know, mm -hmm. and it was never really about, and I struggled with that in my paper last semester because she wanted us to identify what do we want to do? And I was like, I want to do them all, you know, because shouldn't it be based on who sits in front of us versus what theory I like, you know? And so that, that would be my question in the long way of mm -hmm. asking that, you know, how, how do you show up as a clinician and what advice would you give to other clinicians and how they show up for their individual clients? Mm. Particularly African-American clinicians. Yeah, I, I think that when I think about how I show up, one is that for myself, like, yes, I'm well-educated. I have my degrees. I have some letters behind my name. Um, but I, I don't show up um, giving myself the title of being an expert in anything. Um, I, I, try to, I try to show up in a way that offers myself as, as also being a student of learning. Um, because relationships are organic. Um, so I, I, I try to make sure that I, I make that very clear. I think it's also important for me to show up knowing um, that mental health is an institution like any other institution in America. Um, and that oftentimes these are institutions that are founded through a lens of, of whiteness and white supremacy and violence. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I think just naming that, right? Like, as I even think about, um, you know, uh, you know, scholars that, um, you know, like uh, mental health, kind of the, the fathers, if you will, of mental health. I mean, these are, these are all, you know, um, white, white men and, and recognizing that um, very few mental health practices were intended to um, like support and, and, and hold black people safely. Um, and the, the reason why I bring that up is because I think that it's important for me to, to show up knowing that, um, that I wanna be an active participant in like, like disrupting historical harm. I think particularly in working with, with black people um, I think it's important that I show up trauma informed. And so like, I'm always, I'm always being mindful of like these very primal survival responses, like fight, flight, freeze, and more and more research about fawning. Um, I think, I think I've, I've shared quite a bit that I, I do try to show up collaboratively, but I think you know, speaking to what you were naming when you were kind of sharing and speaking about your daughter is that I want to show up inviting a client to know that like problems are problems and people get to be people and people are navigating problems the best way that they can. 
but I do not see people as problems. Mm -hmm. um, because I think even like the language oftentimes of, of therapy, like one of the first questions that a therapist will ask is, well, what are the problems that brought you in? Not, not who are you outside of these problems or who are you as, as, you know, as a human being, like, please share with me, allow me to learn about you. It's, I just want to know about the problem, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know? Um, and so I think that, I guess, like advice, if you will, that I would give to a, to a clinician is um, see, see the client, like hear them um, in, invite a space that allows them to be more than the problems that that they are navigating that brought them into the space. Um, I think I would offer, I'm like, I'm trying to think, be, I guess I'm trying to also think like, trying to find the words for it. I guess the only way that I can describe it is like, you know, people are not carbon copies. Um, and just how important it is to, to see and be with the person that is in front of you. Um, to, 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 trying to put my words together. Maybe I'll have to come back to that one. Okay. Yeah, I might, I might have to come back to that one because, okay. yeah, I might just come back to that one. Let me get it this way. Um, I have found, like, I think one of the things, one of the... Um, traumas that that I have carried from childhood is always feeling like the outsider even within your own family you know mm -hmm. and, and how different sometimes is not tolerated well in our families whether you're you know whether it's the student whether it's the person who enjoys different experiences whatever it is you know it's always attached with a joke or a name and so I think I really struggled um in my early 20s and 30s with this whole idea of being understood without being judged right and and how that shows up in so many of of my relationships how it used to show up in those relationships of around me being heard right um and, you know, sometimes being being a father as well becomes so liberating because you hear your kids mimic back the things that they need sometimes um, and hearing them talk about not being judged and being heard and being valued for who they are and not who necessarily we want them to be because of our experiences or whatever. How do you see um, from your experience within our community and in our intimate relationships and families how do you see um, some of our childhood traumas showing up in those, if that's not too huge of a 
volume right. book or dissertation or whatever, but you know, as as the people know, who, childhood trauma, you know, right? um, as, as the people who come to you, the women who come to you, do you see or are, are there those patterns there? Of, oh, absolutely, absolutely. I I think that for what I what I will share is that kind of underneath the umbrella of of childhood trauma. Um, oftentimes are the narratives of, of not being seen, um, are the narratives of not being good enough, um, not being allowed to make a mistake or to mess up because, you know, even you know, even in my, my own childhood, while I, while I do not identify myself as a child who has, who experienced trauma, um, I definitely remember my father always reminding me, um, you're black. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and because you're black, you will never be afforded the privilege to make mistakes in the same way that your white peers will be able to make mistakes. Um, and, and, and not be noticed for, for their shortcomings. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, just that, that pressure of um, people are watching you and watching you to fail, um, watching you to prove that you are not good enough, um, I think is um, uh, a dominant narrative that I hear. Um, believe it or not, um, there's, there's also, I think, in Black communities, um, uh, a, a, a trauma that's also related to ex being accepted, not just within family, but within peer groups, right? Mm -hmm. the, the dominant narrative of, um, you're not Black enough. Mm -hmm. um, you, you are not, you know, fill in the blank enough. Um, colorism is real. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that... Um, that in and of itself can can be traumatic for um, for a young black person who is just trying to figure out their own sense of belonging in a world that doesn't really open them with with open open arms either. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, up until um, I actually started going to therapy, when I found it, found one that I loved, um, I would always say that my only safe space. For all the stuff I do, my only safe space was my barbershop. You know, mm -hmm. that's that's the only place as a black man that I can walk in on a Saturday, Tuesday afternoon, whenever it is. And regardless of whether they're felonies, PhDs, LLCs, wh whatever the dynamic is, the armor is gone. The shoulders are down. The laughter is real and not mimicked to appease uh, a boss that or a director that doesn't necessarily want you in the environment, you know, who is checking the diversity box but could care less about inclusion, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's been my struggle probably the, the past three years. And so really what prompted me to have these conversations with so many, particularly of my Black uh, male professional friends who are leaving corporate and going out on their own, but the toll it's taking mentally and psychologically because we're not going to get together and 
have a vulnerable conversation about what's really bothering us versus how we mimic or mask it, right? Um, and then and then take it out somewhere else, wherever that is, take it out in, in sometimes unhealthy or unproductive ways elsewhere. So that really started me thinking, and to your point about um, there's just some power in being able to authentically show up in all spaces as who you are, whatever that is. And so I'm, I'm really mm -hmm. fascinated about how as more of us find outlets, as more of us begin to focus on our mental health in the same way we focus on our physical health. Like I go to gym and I mean, we in there doing inventing exercises to <laughs> make certain muscles that I didn't even know existed pop out or bump or jump. But you mentioned mental health or therapy in the same way. Oh, oh we got, oh, we got, excuse, you know, you know, cause we'll go find the right gym, right? We'll go find the right grocery store that, that serves the, or has the right type of meat. I hear that all the time. Oh, I only go here for my meat. I go over here for my vegetables. But the first time we tried therapy and it's not the right person, oh, I couldn't find nobody I didn't want, right? And so how right. do- but, how but, but, there's no, but there's no shame in selecting your meat and vegetables. Right. No one, no one's gonna, no one's gonna, no one's going to say that you're quote unquote crazy because you prefer to get your meat from Whole Foods versus somewhere else, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's, there's, there is, there is not an attachment to shame. Um, there's not an attachment to um, like stigma, um, but there's also like. There's also like. Yeah, I guess I guess that's all that I can say is that they, there's there's not there's not like this sense of shame, mm -hmm. um, and you know, um, and I think that part of the challenge um, is that you know, like you're saying, you know, for example, you can you can go into a barbershop and and have you know, there's something about that environment and and the connection. And that allows those real conversations to happen, happen, and because of how authentic those conversations are, there's this like organic therapeutic benefit to that. Mm -hmm. um, and I guess my question is like, like, why does it have to be limited to that space? Mm -hmm. um, and you know, I I oftentimes you know share with clients. You know, like, I know that what we're talking about, it ain't dinner table conversation, but what if it was mm -hmm. like, like, you know what I mean? Like what, like, what if it, what if it was like, what if it could be, um, how would that, how would that change people's relationships with shame and guilt? Um, because shame is rooted in that belief of like who I am is bad mm -hmm. um and guilt is rooted in this belief of like what i'm doing is bad um and so that shame and guilt about about going to therapy it, it's 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 like i don't know it's like well what what is what is that then saying is that saying that um that a person is 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 
deserving of safety and not deserving of um, a space to process, not deserving of the range of emotions that they're allowed to have access to. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know, I just, I just wish that, I wish that we as a community could really disrupt, I think this, the stigma that we actually perpetuate in, in our own, in our own community, mm -hmm. um, that I wish we could continue to reframe like in a really intentional way. Yeah, I love that. And I'm, we're coming up on our on our end. So I got a couple, just like two more questions for you. But but to that point, um, I, I do a lot of activities around, you know, racial equity and you know, diversity inclusion work. And, and one of the questions or activities is, is sometimes around, you know, what do, what do you like about being who you are from your ethnicity or whatever? Um, and at the top of my list always, is the head nod, you know, and whether it's a young man on the street, whether it's the homeless veteran, you know, whether it's corporate America, wherever, when in general, when, when two black men are meeting, at least in my experience, and they make eye contact, nothing else has to be said, and you just get the head nod. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's so fulfilling. And to your point that you just made, it's so fulfilling because there's an acknowledgement and an awareness there and, a, and an understanding mm -hmm. of shared struggle. I just wish we got to the space to where we could have the conversation. Mm -hmm. Felt vulnerable mm -hmm. enough in the space to have the conversation about we going through this together. Let's talk about it. So we then don't take it home or take it wherever we're going to take it or whatever. So mm -hmm. absolutely. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I guess like if, if I can just kind of add to that right because I again like so much like so much of the work that I do is like this disrupting these narratives around and, and I guess like not to minimize like again like yes like struggle is real like we can have multiple multiple conversations about that but like when I think about like that head nod too like it's also about like not only do I see you, but like, I see you in your resilience. I see mm -hmm. you in your survivorship, mm -hmm. right? Like I see you because I'm looking at you and I know that you're still here and standing, right? And so I think like how to also invite some space too of like, yes, I, I see you and acknowledge that you are in this struggle, but I also see and acknowledge your survivorship and your strength and your capacity to still show up. And, and invite more stories just from just from being here. Um, so that would be like the only thing that, that I would like maybe piggyback or add add to that. Well, I love um, it. Yeah, I'm still working on that that reframing narrative because you know it it impacts us all. So absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Because struggle lives in isolation, trauma lives in isolation. Like healing happens in community, and so mm -hmm. like that head nod is like that's community, that's healing, that's that's legacy building. Um, that's, 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 that is recognizing like, yes, to, to see each other as black people is to absolutely understand the historical context. Um, but that seeing of each other and acknowledgement is also healing. Um, that is trauma reparative work too. Um, that, that's the exciting piece, you know, one of many exciting pieces. All right. Before I let you go, a couple questions. Um, 
one of the last ones with the work that you do, how do, how do you take care of yourself? What does your self care look like? And, and what have you learned to get to where you are now around that? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I have reached a point now, almost seven years into this work. Um, I, I no longer negotiate my boundaries around when I am, when I am working and when I am not working, um, I, I, I take care of myself I think boundaries is a big piece. Mm-hmm. Um, I think um, naming my capacity is is a big piece. Um, I think practicing gratitude um, is important. Um, and I think also like being present for things that bring me joy and ease. Mm-hmm. Um, my family, my pets, good food, rest, mm-hmm. <laughs> rest. Um, and recognizing that sometimes, sometimes this work is about surrendering, Mm -hmm. you know, this is, this is, this is not work that someone should come in feeling like they're motivated to save people. Um, but that you're, you're motivated to, uh, create a safe space where you can be in collaboration with someone figuring out their own pathway. Um, so I think for me, remembering my why um, is an important part of my self-care um, because that that keeps me grounded. It keeps me focused, but it also reminds me of why I'm doing this work and why it is important for me to take care of myself so that I can keep doing this work. Okay. Yeah, the last time we talked, you, you dropped such nuggets. And the last time you talked, you phrased it as um things stating what you need and not negotiating and and i have that written like in all of my journals across the top you know just even at even at work even in the challenging environment that i've spent the last two and a half years like that became my thing like i'm gonna state it not gonna hide it not gonna cover it up and i'm not gonna negotiate and Mm -hmm. if that means it's not for me anymore then it's not for me anymore and it's not exactly because it it is about like if I am naming what I need so that I can show up, mm-hmm. you know, and it, and, and what I say to clients is like, it's, it's the same thing. You would not ask a firefighter to walk into a burning building with a t-shirt and a pair of flip-flops and expect that person to show up and, and have what they need to do the best job that they can do. It is a non-negotiable. You, you have that. to, you you just you have to I mean I I know what it's like to not um and it is not it wasn't sustainable it it literally was like walking into a burning building with with a t-shirt and pair of flip-flops um it's like now I know what I need I know that I need vacation time I need time off I need time to rest I need to be with my family I need to laugh um I need to um you know, I need to go to trainings, um, but I I no longer I no longer ask. Um, I provide evidence that supports 
um, this is what I need to show up as my best self. Um, because the reality is, um, again, if you, if you do not name what you need, um, very few people are going to offer it. And it doesn't mean that they're bad people. They just don't know. Um, so yes, that, that is, that for me was a, was a, was a game changer. Um, it, well, it, there's it's, so many implications in that for professionals, especially like with teachers, especially like, you know, what we're going through right now is, as we're stripping them of the t-shirt and, and might just be giving them the flip-flops to run in the burning building, you know? So yeah. I, I love that. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. All right. So I'm not going to keep you because I, I promised I wouldn't keep you longer than an hour, but this has been great. Um, as we begin this conversation, uh, it's starting off all things us. And so before I let you go, is there anything else you want to share, say, shout out, whatever, um, before I let you go tonight? Um, I should have a shout out, shouldn't I? Nothing. I put you on the spot. So I'll say this and it might come to you as I close out, you know, I, as, as I interviewed people, because I really didn't care. I think, I think educational philosophies are dumb. I won't, I won't say they're stupid because I might hear nine-year-old listening to my podcast and well, he said stupid. Why can't I say stupid? Um, I just don't think, you know, something that you contrived or worked on is very meaningful to tell me what kind of person you're going to be in a classroom. Um, and so I would always put, you know, it wasn't ever your answer. You know, that last half of my interview questions were never about your answer. I just wanted to understand your thinking and your why, you know, and, and oftentimes in the moment on the spot, you can't make that up. You know, I can see when you go for the lion or the eagle that what you're, you know, what you're really trying to tell me, you know, because that's what everybody kind of go, kind of jumps to the alpha animals. And so when I asked you that question, some 17 or so years ago now, might have been long ago, so about yeah, 16, 17 years ago, um, you were the only person to this date, only educator to this date who said an ant. <laughs> And, you know, on the inside, when you said it, I was like, okay, let me see where she's going with this one. <laughs> you know, she's lady done pick the insect. Um, and as you explained it, I said to myself, because you talked about collaboration, which is a word that you have used, I know, 10 times tonight, right? You talked about how small in stature you were, but how much you could carry if you were supported in the right way, got what you need. And so I say all that to say that in the 20 plus years of being a principal and in that one answer, I can honestly say that, that you have truly lived up to be the aunt that you told me you were some 17 years ago. And, and I truly couldn't be more prouder of you and your journey. And it's, and it's, humbling to me in that I honor you and that you have become an inspiration to me at this point in my journey. So I just want to thank you for that. I want to thank you for your time. Thank you for being on for all things us. And do you have a shout out yet? <laughs> I don't have a shout out. Um, You want to shout out your amazing husband who's doing some 
journeying, trekking somewhere in the world? My, 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 my loving introverted husband, yes. But I, I, I know that he would be like, nope, no, 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 nope, nope, no. I'm, I'm in the woods. I'm in the woods. I'm in the woods. Um, I think in, in, in all, in all due seriousness, I think if I, if I had to give a shout out to anybody, um, I would give a shout out to um, anyone who continues to choose to try. Anyone and everyone who continues to choose to try. Um, I would give a shout out to to those individuals, um, regardless of regardless of those feelings of defeat or those feelings of failure or those feelings of like invisibility, all of the other things that makes someone say, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, and I would, I would give a special shout out. I would give a special shout out to that person and those people um, because this is not an easy world to walk in. Um, and we have to choose to try. And I know all of the reasons why somebody would say, I, I just, I, I don't want to, um, but I really want to give a shout out to, to anyone that says, I have no idea what I'm doing, um, but, but I'm, I'm going to choose to, I'm going to choose to try. Well, thank you, Ms. Nicole Armstead-Williams. I can honestly say nothing else needs to be said after that. And thank you for joining the latest episode of For All Things Us. Have a good night. Mm -hmm.